0: I think build, sell, lead. Those are three roles that people can roughly do in the future. And I think learning all three of those are really important. And I think you get the most gains if you can do all three simultaneously, or you're ambidextrous. And that's really, really hard. Building is really key. Can you build, right? Can you code or can you understand code? Can you leverage technology to build whatever it is and know the the logic or organizational structure to get stuff built? Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, Venture Capitalist, Serial Founder, Harvard MBA, Sci-Fi nerd, and Dad of Two Daughters. Mondays for your weekly tech news debate with Shyen Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Wednesdays for interviews of regional changemakers covering both the highs and lows of leadership. Fridays for personal diary insights and listener questions and answers. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Essival helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out e s e v e l E-S-E-V-E-L.com, and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Shuyen. Excited to discuss all things startup talent, salaries, hiring today with you. How are you feeling today?
1: Well, I think it's a truism of the world that everyone always thinks they're underpaid.
0: Ooh. It like,
1: doesn't matter where you are or how much you're getting paid.
0: So, do we think we're underpaid?
1: <laughs> well, I set my own salary. So, I guess I can't. I can't think that.
0: You have to complain to yourself, lodge a complaint, right? There you go. Yeah,
1: I mean, at this point, the trade off is like, do I pay myself more or do I pay someone else so that I can get more help?
0: Well, I think that's the case for every founder and CEO that's out there. Uh, I think today's report, obviously, we are having the wonderful report from Glintz and Monksville Ventures for the Southeast Asia Startup uh, Talent Report 2023. So they've been doing this for the past couple of years. So it's has been interesting to see how the numbers have been changing over time, but also the trends that they've been doing. So I think kind of like what we've done in the past for Asia Partners Report and Southeast Asia Tech, for Foxmont Report that we discussed in previous weeks that you can find on previous episodes. We're going to discuss the things we like and the questions that we have, right? Mm -hmm. So why don't you We want to start first with one thing you like uh, about or one interesting insight that you got from the report.
1: I mean, I think the report largely confirms, I think with data, what we see anecdotally. I think the thing that's interesting to me is that despite the recent exit events, equity equity compensation still remains pretty low in the region. And I think that is consistent in that You know, founders you talk to say, well, employees don't value it. So why should I give it? (laughs) And then you don't give it. So then if there is an exit, then, you know, then employees didn't benefit. So then they continue not to value it. Like, it's kind of this negative cycle. Yeah. But I'm kind of curious, is that consistent with what you're seeing across your portfolio as well?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think obviously there's a behavioral component of the feedback loop about employees versus employers giving slash requiring ESOPs. I think there was another debate I had over supper was that maybe it is also a rational requirement and request by employees, right? I mean, the exit multiples for Southeast Asia has been weaker, right? The exit probability also feels weaker compared to the US, right? And so to some extent, cash is worth more if ESOPs are eventually not going to be worth as much, right? And there hasn't been a necessary great demonstration, I think, with the last set of companies that have gone public, right? And then also, a couple of the fact that it's not a very good secondary market, so it's not easy to cash out your ESOPs before the exit. So if you want to buy a house or you want to get a car, these are things that you can't really do effectively or efficiently in Southeast Asia. So actually, what that means is that ESOPs versus, say, the same ESOP percentage in the US might be worth less, right? Might be take longer to get there and it's much more illiquid, right? And so that perhaps lowers the value of ESOP. And that could be a rational explanation for the gap between the US and Southeast Asia.
1: That's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we just need to get through this kind of like next cycle of exits. And ideally, you have like a, a C group or a Google type event where you're basically minting a bunch of multimillionaires. And then people start saying, hey, I want that.
0: Yeah, and I think what you you and I have discussed is that ESOPs are good for morale, they're good for long-term retention, they're good for co-ownership mentality. So I think it's not just the dollars and cents, right, of the cash and everything, but from an employer perspective, I think, my recommendation I always say is like, you should always give ESOPs, even if they don't want it, you should give them some, right? Now, the quantum is going to be much less, I guess, over time, but you should always make sure to give something, Um So that's how I recommend founders to think about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, ownership matters, right? Like, if you feel like an employee versus you feel like an owner, I think it does change how you behave on the margin too. Right? Do I put in the extra effort or not?
0: Yeah. And also, it's like a bit of a psychological bias as well, right? If you have a share of the company, it's very different from saying like, oh, I got 10 grand more, right? I think the time horizon of that cash slash outcome is, I don't know, embedded. And also, I think it's symbolic, right? And to give out ESOPs because a lot of folks don't give out ESOPs as well as Southeast Asia. Yeah, but you still
1: you still have to educate people on what it is, right? You still there's Mm. still like even in the U.S. like there's a lot of work that you have to do to help people understand what their options are worth, and how basically like what you're doing day to day is actually connected to your options value going up. So there is there's still a fair amount of education to be done there.
0: Yeah, and I think they also talked a little bit about how the founding CTOs, for example, normally push for more equity also because they are part of the founding journey at the stage are more cash-heavy because obviously it's the latest stage of the company. They have more expertise. So I thought it was an interesting dynamic. And of course, the, the CTOs earn more than the CEOs in terms of cash, which is, I think, good to see data confirm what we kind of know anecdotally as well. Yeah. Uh, let me share about what I thought was really interesting. I thought it was interesting about hybrid work and remote work and and in-time office, right? So I thought it was interesting to see that, of course, across Southeast Asia, about 45% was full-time in the office, 45% was hybrid and about 12% fully remote. But I thought it was interesting when you break it down by country was that Singapore is like 63% hybrid and 12% uh, and 25% remote. In other words, like effectively 90% is some form of remote and only about 10 to 12% are in office versus Vietnam is like 83% in the office and 11% hybrid, 6% remote. And then Indonesia is somewhere in the middle of these two, right? Yeah. And I think anecdotally, it makes sense, right? I mean, in Singapore, I think a lot of folks do a hybrid because, yeah. And, you know, Singapore is small, but you have to travel, the cost of living. So I think a lot of folks are using hybrid. And then in Vietnam, I think people feel like, they should be in the office, culturally, the current practice. I think Indonesia, what's interesting is that people say they have to do hybrid. They had to go remote because the traffic's too bad, right? They can't get to the office, right? So there's an interesting dynamic where, you know, different flavors to why they're doing hybrid or remote across the region.
1: I wonder if, though, it's also because if you're in Singapore, you may have a higher probability of operating a regional business.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah. And
1: so you have team members elsewhere anyway. Yeah. And... If you have them elsewhere, then, you know, it's not just about the people who are elsewhere, but it's like, how do you collaborate, right? You don't need to be in an office to collaborate with someone remotely. Yeah. And I think also the other thought might be availability of high-speed internet at home. Right. Like, I think in Indonesia, like, one challenge during the pandemic that our founders said was that a lot of their employees didn't have good internet at home. Yeah. So they had to go into office to even, like, be productive. Yeah. Um. So I'm kind of curious what that comparable rate is in, in in indonesia and vietnam
0: yeah i think it's a fair point and you know, staring at the numbers here yeah i think singapore has 25 percent remote right which is about three to four times more than the other southeast asian countries right full remote right and i think this goes exactly what you said right it's like if half your team is across the region then why even have an office right you go into the office to dial into a camera <laughs> and then you're just like ah, oh, forget it let's just dial from home right and uh,
1: yeah, but I think it's an interesting question, right? So I had a debate on this recently with one of our founders, which is can hmm. you have an effective organization with remote employees mm-hmm. if the bulk of the employees are in one place? Right. And you know,
0: hmm.
1: and you know, his point of view was that like the bulk of his team is in one one city and it's too hard to integrate a senior person remotely. Mm-hmm. And my sort of counter to that was part of it is less about, I mean, remote matters, but it's more about how you operate the business, which is like, why do people think in-person is important? It's actually, partially, it's like the camaraderie, whatever. But it's also because it means, I think, that your business operates much more on implicit understandings than explicit Mm -hmm. agreements. Yeah. Right. And that's why, if you're not in office, it's hard to know what the implicit understandings are yeah, because you don't see it. Mm-hmm. But if you operate in a much more explicit agreement sort of org design, right? you write everything down, you devolve decision making down to the nodes, then it actually makes it easier to run a remote and a distributed organization. Mm-hmm. And so like where you're physically located, I think is one part of the equation, but I actually think the the bigger, more salient point is like how do you actually make decisions and communicate information in your organization? Um, and those decisions, I think, drive whether or not you could do remote or hybrid effectively.
0: Yeah. And I think that also intersects with the fact that there is a cost of living versus cost of compensation dynamic, right? I think that if you are in Singapore where salaries are high, but also it's hard to get a visas in for the right talent to come in, then you're just like, the point is moot, right? In some sense where you have to go hybrid or remote effectively if you want to absorb the right talent for that conversation that you just said. Versus I think for some teams that are Vietnam only and are primarily Vietnam talent, then that question doesn't even come up, right? It's just like, hey, we can do both, right? We can have the best talent and we can have a great culture where everyone's there, right? So I think it's going to be interesting. I I suspect that Singapore is going to generate the next wave of like multinational corporations where everybody's remote because... Is this like a biological constraint, right? Like, you, know, you just can't find the right people in Singapore or you can't bring them in easily. It's too expensive, basically. Yeah. And I think we mentioned this earlier in the past, right? We talked about the crowding out of employment passes, right? For FANG, the big tech companies. So there's an implicit industrial policy. Let me paraphrase on your behalf here. Is that we grant visas to the large tech companies. But commensurately, I think it's harder for that uh, junior talent that are trying to come into Southeast Asia or Singapore to come to Singapore. What are your thoughts?
1: Not even junior talent, right? I think basically what you have is you end up with like a two-tier compensation market where multinationals, FANG, pay at one level and then you know startups and SMEs pay at a different level. And that makes it, I think, really hard to compete, right? I think on the margin. Like, you live in a high-cost city, would you rather be paid, like, I don't know, $250,000, $300,000 a year, or you want to be paid $100, $120,000 a year? I think it's, like, a huge difference. And so I think that makes it really challenging for startups to, to hire, unless people are basically like, hey, I have a nice savings cushion, I want to take some risk, I really want to work on this technology, work with this team. On a pure comp perspective, I think it's pretty hard.
0: Yeah, and I think the way that that has been solved in other regions is basically using ESOP, right, which we talked about, right? But the problem is that when you're calculating your employment pass and you're joining an early-stage startup, your equity shares are not fully incorporated, I think, into decision-making, unfortunately. That's why I've heard for the employment pass application, right?
1: But even the employment pass application is ridiculous. Like, we had one EP that got held up because they're like, why does this guy have so much equity? (laughs) And you're like, I, well, because we're asking him to take a pay cut. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to make it up somewhere. Like, I mean, it was kind of like a ridiculous conversation.
0: Sorry, that's funny. And then, did you, yeah, and then after that, you have to say, like, it's an early stage. So the equity is worth less, but it's going to be worth more in the future. How much is it worth? Yeah.
1: I, I was just, like, I was annoyed. I mean, I think it took, like, four months to get this guy as EP. And, yeah. like, four months in startup land is actually quite a long time.
0: Yeah, you that's know? that's like the average lifespan is about two years, right? So that's yeah. like one-sixth of the lifespan. So
1: I don't know. I really wish there was some way we could have like a dedicated window at MOM or something. Yeah. Just people to understand startup comp better so that yeah. we can say like, hey, this is not actually that unusual. This is actually the way that people can bring high-quality talent in without like huge amounts of money.
0: Yeah, I think the uncertainty is sort of what kills it, right? I mean, you have a job offer. <laughs> but, you know, there's going to be a form month delay where you may or may not get a job. I mean, that's just bonkers from a candidate perspective, right? So you're just going to stick with the normal job, right? Slash, you know, the big company job. But I think what's interesting is kind of like in terms of the questions here is I think we're seeing this interesting spread, right? In diffusion of technology talents. I thought it was interesting to see that there was different tech talent salaries. I mean, obviously, product manager is a good example of like Singapore PM salaries are much higher than that compared to Indonesia and Vietnam. Some of it is explained by technical skills. Some of it, of course, is by who you're hiring for, I guess. But that's how it was interesting, right? I mean, that kind of like labor arbitrage feels like a no-brainer, especially in a world of hybrid or remote, right? So I just feel like more and more jobs are just going to flow out, out of Singapore to the benefit of Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... People already started that during the pandemic, right? Which is like, hey, actually I can have a designer in J B who's a third of the cost. Why not? And I think then you end up in Singapore as like basically talent you can't find elsewhere or talent you can't talent you can find that talent you can't find that isn't willing to move to Jakarta or Ho Chi Minh or Manila or wherever.
0: Yeah. And I think it makes sense in the short term, but I'm always get worried over the long term, right? Because I think, well, let's talk about a positive version of the story, right? I think the positive version is that Vietnam is full of engineering teams. I heard a story about how large Singapore engineering companies moving 30 roles to Vietnam. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, it's great for the Vietnamese economy, great knowledge transfer. These folks are going to get great training within the Singapore system, right? Of like meritocracy and all these best practices. And then one day they're going to become engineering leaders and they're going to become founders one day and they'll stay in Vietnam, right? (laughs) So I think that's great for the Vietnam ecosystem. But I think that some of the Singapore industrial policy and educational policy kind of like underweight some of this like critical mass, right? Um, Where you want to have a certain density, right? Of talent in some sectors of junior, middle management and senior talent. But you can't just expect to cream off senior talent and not, I don't know. Is that a company that only purchases talent but doesn't promote from within, right? <laughs> you know?
1: Well, yeah. I don't know if that's yeah. entirely fair. I mean, yeah. I think the Singaporean trained engineers are actually very employable. We just don't make enough of them. Like if you take the graduated class of like NUS, NTU, SUTD, SMU has a, some, some technical degrees. Like you just, they all get hired. Yeah. We just don't have enough. And so... But maybe that's to your industrial policy point, which is like we our visas tend to be very high-end. Yeah. And we need to kind of think about the full stack of those.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the sweet spot for everybody is just have more seats, right? Have more undergraduates, look at a region, right? And bring everybody in who's the best and then go from there, right?
1: Yeah, but if like you don't give them visas and cost of living is really high.
0: Yeah, they go back. And
1: it becomes really hard, right? People yeah. go home.
0: Yeah, yeah. Why not? You-
1: build that MRT to JB then you can have a little (laughs) startup town in JB it's like Oakland
0: yeah but then like you said you might as well just use high speed internet then if you're taking the MRT the train so what questions do you have in your head I guess in terms of you've seen the report, there's so many different parts of it what's on your mind for the tech landscape talent wise
1: I mean I, I think I, I'm not that surprised by the comp numbers, right? I, I think this is pretty consistent with what I would expect. I am curious if like all the layoffs actually lead to more startups. Or do those people kind of get recirculated into more like big company, stable corporate jobs because people are like, ah, I'm done with startups. It's too high variance. I, I want some stability or are they like, it? I can do it myself and better. <laughs> i want <don't> to <laughs> be my own boss. So I'm kind of curious kind of what happens given the sort of scale of the layoffs over the last six months across both regional startups and um, regionally based MNCs, right? So so that's kind of what I'm sort of more meta interested in on the, on the talent side. Can we turn this into an engine mm, yeah. of growth going forward?
0: Well, I think I definitely see that, at least on the founder side. So a lot of founders, obviously, their companies are winding down. And obviously, some of them make decisions to join big tech companies. Some decide to join their family businesses. And I think some are starting to build again, right? So I think that feels like a more straightforward path. I feel like I haven't seen too many folks who have been laid off. Because I think the cash, I don't know what's the word. The cash buffer is too thin, I think. It's Southeast Asia, That's my my read, I think. So I don't really see a lot of executives, folks who are like on my end yet, who have been laid off. And then they're like, okay, I want to build a business. I guess the only ones I can think of that somewhat see that is maybe you can see a few of them at Antler as a program where they provide some of that cash buffer in between. But generally I haven't seen that like Silicon Valley style, right? Which is like, okay, you got laid off, but I don't know, you had half a mil stash in a way somewhere. And then, you know, you're going to build something. I don't really see that. Yeah. Yeah. One can dream. One can dream. Airdrop half a million dollars to, <laughs> to folks to build companies. Oh, but that's true as well, right? I mean, also because VC is a bit tight in terms of liquidity and deployment now. So I think that proactive pre product market fit type of funding that could have like been a stopgap for half a mil of pre funding. I think that, I think that just feels a bit harder as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think people are asking for more.
0: metrics than they were 12 months ago yeah so the question i have in my head is yeah like tech roles what do we think is going to change for i guess esops and equity over time right do i believe that this is going to grow larger as a share competition over time or do i believe this is roughly the stable component right um because I think it was interesting where the trends that they shared was like, it still showed that the numbers roughly were the same over the past few years. Yeah. So I just yeah. thought it was interesting because a lot of folks expect that trend to get better, right? Depending on how you look at it. But more ESOPs to be shared over time. So I just thought it was interesting. Maybe we've already hit a stable state.
1: Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, I think what would change it, right? I think how do you move off of an equilibrium of what people are used to? Like Either you need like a really big exit for a company that had proactively given everyone shares to make people start saying, hey, where are my shares? Or you need like founders to come in who have a very different baseline. And I don't know whether you have enough of those people coming in in volume to make a difference on the aggregate number.
0: Yeah. Actually, this also intersects with something we just said, right? Which is that we're talking about the remote world and a spread, right? And one thing I do know from a behavioral economic side is like when your income is $10,000 a year, a dollar is worth a lot more to you. Than when you're earning hundred thousand dollars a year. So the truth is, we look at this cash spread as if it's like a linear trade-off against equity. But the truth is, if your team is now, for example, eighty percent in Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, where you know the average salary is much lower for tech, that dollar is can, worth yeah a, the dollars worth a lot more, right?
1: The marginal cash is way more valuable to you.
0: Yeah, and so the so it's not just a linear thing, but so maybe with this remote push, actually, we can expect ESOPs, I'm just brainstorming here. To decline. Or stay flat, right? It could be either. But but basically, the remote work push because I think Singaporean founders and Singaporean employees are much more, from my perspective, open to ESOPs, right? Being distributed, negotiated for larger chunks, right? And I've seen that in other markets. So as the mix moves from Singaporean employees to employees in other countries, right? Where the marginal dollars were valued more, but also the less of a culture, we might actually see, like you said, ESOPs to decline or even stay the same, right? Until this labor arbitrage disappears, right? When a PM in Singapore doesn't pay, it doesn't get paid three times more than their counterpart in a different country. Yeah. When the arbitrage looks more normal and just only accounts for quality, then I think that's when ESOPs might come back again. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Fair point.
0: Interesting debate that we have here. <laughs> I just thought learn something new today. I thought it was interesting to also look at some of the bonuses as well. I think, like, performance bonus, is, they said about 58% have a performance bonus. And then they said 33% have a 13 month bonus, which is very confusing to me. 13 month bonus, when you, I was mean, just saying, right? And of course, they'll say like 25% have a referral bonus, 70% have a retention bonus, and 13% have a spot bonus. So I thought it was an interesting set of bonus structure. And I think I often get questions from founders to be like, Hey, should I offer a 13-month bonus and a performance bonus? Things like that.
1: I don't really understand the 13-month bonus. Can you explain it to me?
0: Supposedly... you have this in the US. Yeah, it's a practice in Singapore and some countries. And Singaporean companies that they give you 12 months of salary. And then on December, they give you one month salary as a bonus. That's independent. And yeah, it doesn't make sense because wouldn't you just put it into your gross? And I've literally had budgeting debates where we just couldn't, I was like trying to figure out why the numbers were like different because I'm like, your monthly gross is this, but why is the annualized forecast yeah. at this? And I'm like, this makes no sense until I find out there's the 13-month bonus. And I was just like, what's going on, right? Anyway. Uh,
1: yeah, I don't know. I, I prefer the idea of a performance bonus to a 13-month like random thing because it's like, wouldn't you just rather have a higher base salary so you can like kind of understand what that is? and also having an end of year performance bonus just gives you more flexibility i think on your cash management. The spot bonus is an interesting question like i think i have a hard time seeing people implementing that very well or consistently until you're like quite a bit further along.
0: I had to do uh, fairly as well, honestly. Yeah,
1: and it requires kind of like a lot of machinery to kind of get it going unless it's really very coin operated role. Yeah. But the performance bonus i think like a mix of like company performance versus individual team performance, I think that can help people like drive. Like You really want to drive them towards a number. I've seen it been pretty effective. Uh,
0: yeah. I think the breakout feels like everybody should have a performance bonus. Uh, the demand bonus should effectively go to zero. You just move one side to the other side, right? And then every, there should always be a referral bonus. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I the, think in the early
1: days, yeah. you end up kind of hiring out of your own networks. And so, yeah you'll have
0: much better information on those candidates than someone coming in cold through your funnel. Yeah, exactly. Retention bonus is a weird one. Have you ever seen that done well? I mean, that's what ESOPs are for, right?
1: No. I mean, I think... What is it? It's like your employee comes to you and it's like, hey, I'm a competitive offer. I'm going to leave. And you're like, no, 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 stay. Here's something to sweeten the pot. I mean, I think... By that time they're already out the door, even if you retain them, like, what does that do for you? that if a higher offer comes along, they're gonna go. So, and I think the other addicts that I think about is that comp is only part of the equation. Like when people talk about comp, there's probably other things they're unhappy about. Comp is just the easiest, most concrete thing to point to,
0: yeah. That reminds me of this quote that was in a report from Minette Navarrete, from the president of Kickstart Ventures. And she said that she asked founders when making critical decisions today is, would we decide this way if we had half the resources tomorrow? If the answer is no, the decision bears more thought. So it's a stress test, right, about the prioritization of resourcing. And I think... I think I think there's more tough times, actually, honestly, in this coming year. I don't know. I think earlier in the year, we were like, oh, things are going to be okay. By No. Either.
1: No, I said I thought there were going to be more layoffs. Remember?
0: Okay, we're going to go back and check the, check the record. But, okay, I was under the impression that things would be like, get better by the end of the year. But it feels like the pain is going to drag on for, another, I don't know, two years. So I think this is going to be a really tricky period for a lot of teams, I think, in terms of layoffs, I think. I think we're going to see a lot of companies announce the second round in this second half of the year.
1: Oh, yeah. Because people always make the same mistake. You never cut enough the first time. Yeah. See, two shallow cuts is worse than one deep cut because it makes the morale hit, like drag on way yeah. more. And it increases more of that, like, am I next? This is going to happen. Then you're like distracted because you're like looking for another job in case you get laid off. You don't know what's going to happen. You're like living in this zone of uncertainty and fear.
0: Yeah. Well, the only thing worse than that is uh, two shallow cuts and then a third shallow cut <laughs> after that. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like dark humor here. No, it's pretty terrible. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. So how how do you think... Oh, so, I know we did a previous episode, right? We talked about if you were one of the people being laid off, right? And to some extent, if you're an employee you're laying off what you should do. We talked about how this life the end of the tunnel. Any further thoughts that you've had? I'll tell you mine very quickly. Mine is, you know, I think... We made, I made an assumption in the advice that you would be applying at another technology job, right? And I think that it's worth applying to non-tech jobs as well. I think there's a strong possibility that if you're applying for jobs and you're looking for a new one, just apply to non-classic tech, right? Maybe you apply to the banks or to the conglomerates to work there. Obviously, they'll be looking for technical talent or folks that are willing to be more innovative. And the second thing I'll add is I think if you're in a market that's more worse hit by layoffs, so for example, like Singapore Indonesia, consider relocation as well. So if you see a good startup opportunity that you want to do across the region and you don't have family and kids, yeah, maybe take a take the chance to take a job somewhere else in a different market that doesn't have your skill set and is willing to move you in to a place of low cost living and just work there for two to four years. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's sound advice. But I mean, despite the layoffs and stuff, there are still companies that are growing and hiring. So I think looking for who has made a funding announcement recently—that's yeah. generally when people are picking up hiring because they've got fresh funds in the bank. And there's there's still there's still a lot of good activity in the ecosystem. Mm. It's just that layoffs, I think, dominate the news cycle more.
0: Yeah, I agree about funding announcements. If they announce something, go send your resume to all of them and add all of them on LinkedIn. If, if, I guess the question I have is, let's just say you're coaching a bunch of like teenagers, right? And they're looking at the world ahead. I'm kind of curious, what what, what jobs would you train them for? uh, From your perspective?
1: I wouldn't train them for a job. Yeah? No,
0: I would say, I think there's three
1: things they should learn. One is writing effectively. Like, how do you communicate ideas and arguments and understanding what makes a good argument and communication? Uh, I think written and oral, so that's one, comms. I think two is like, I don't think you actually need to necessarily learn how to code, but I think you need to understand how code works. So, like, We're seeing all of these advances in LLMs and generative AI, and very few, like comparatively fewer people will actually like build their own LLMs, but like tons of people are going to build on top of that, right? And so I think understanding basically the structure of how those things work and how you can harness them for purposes, I think is something I would learn how to do. And then the last part is like statistics. (laughs) Like... The amount of data in the world has simply exploded and will continue to explode. And so like being able to understand what data means when you look at it, you don't need to be a data scientist. You just need to have a sense of like, okay, if I look at a data being output by this system, like what does that tell me about this business or this product or this thing? I think if you have those three sort of like core skill sets, you could probably learn other things. But I think it's really hard in the world for basically people who are like zero understanding of mm. technology and how it works because you have no framework to think about anything. Right. And then people who cannot communicate is really hard because at the end of the day, you are all, everyone is selling something. If you are not selling a product or service, you are selling yourself as an employee, as a founder, right. as a partner. You're selling ideas. And so if you can't communicate, I think like your your life just becomes, like, way, way, way harder. Yeah. Um, and then the stats thing is, like, you just have no sense of magnitude. You just don't understand. Like, is this important or not? You're just going to be deluged with data, and so being able to, like, sort through that, I think, is really important. Yeah. And so even my six-year-old, she'll tell me, like, random stuff, and I'm like, does this matter? Is this material? <laughs> and, you it, know, like, dominates her brain, and you're like, this is irrelevant. Do not focus on this, so... It's, it's, I think those, that's what I would advise a high schooler. Yeah. But because you don't know what jobs are going to emerge. Like when we were in school, was TikToker a job?
0: Nope. (laughs) Not (laughs) a job.
1: Yeah. 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 But, and I think these are skills anybody should have, whether you are a deeply technical person, you're still going to need to get your projects funded. Or you're like a very fuzzy person. You're still going to have to interact with all these people. So I, I think like, core basic skills around that kind of equip you with anything. And then you just have to have the ability to do a little bit of grinding.
0: (laughs) That's your fourth skill, (laughs) is grind. I mean, it's fair. Yeah. Perseverance and getting shit done. Yeah, yeah. So, I
1: mean, I always tell everyone, like, my first job, I worked in investment banking. I was an Excel monkey. And, like, one of the biggest lessons was, like, the human body is actually capable of way more than you think it is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with the appropriate incentives
0: you can treat this car like trash
1: you <laughs> no, no, just like like yeah. you can yeah, you didn't think that you could do that yeah, and yeah, then yeah. you're like oh okay i can do that yeah and yeah. so obviously you don't want to spend your life operating like working 100 hours a week but yeah. knowing that you can do that actually is incredibly empowering because right. you're like okay if i just put my head down
0: i can do this right yeah no, I think it's true. You it does remind me when I was in the army and, you know, before that I was very nice and middle class and then suddenly you don't sleep for three days and you're like, oh, I can do this, doing this high strenuous like military exercises. And then you're just like, yeah. I mean, after you do that and you're like, oh, I love sleeping after that. Before that, you don't want to sleep. After that, you're like, oh, you know what? I really love sleeping, right? So I think it's interesting. I mean, if I was to teach my kids, I would, I mean, base. I'm also kind of like I have to say thank you for inspiring me because I changed my answers so I have to say
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would say like I think I think build sell lead I think those are three roles that people can roughly do in the future in the few. and I think learning all three of those are really important and I think you get the most gains if you can do all three right simultaneously or you're ambidextrous and that's really really hard but that's like kind of like the gold price, right or the the Triathlon, right? Kind of thing, right? But I think, like you said, building is really key. Can you build, right? Can you code or can you understand code? Can you leverage technology to build whatever it is, right? And know the, the logic or organizational structure to get stuff built. I think sell, like you said, understanding humans, understanding a problem. Don't get disconnected from the actual profit and loss machine. Don't become an executive or like some consultant who doesn't understand how it really works about the product is being done. So I think selling to humans, selling to organizations, and then leadership. Right? I think, at least in our lifetime, I think you have to lead both humans, robots, and capital. So being able to mobilize them and organize them. And I think the truth is you have to do all three, right? In the future, to really have that awesome career. I hope my my do- two daughters have right. So uh, I think that's going to be a tricky part. Obviously, I don't. It's hard to imagine anyone being good at all three to be honest.
1: I think values also, all of that has to be connected to a value system.
0: Oh. And that's a vitamin. No,
1: no, no. <laughs> I think Values. Because, yeah. Yeah. Because I think I think part of leadership is like people need to connect with you. That's right. And like what do you stand for? Like what matters to you? How do they know that they live in a just environment? How do they know you're they're gonna you're gonna treat them fairly? Yeah, yeah you're yeah. not just in a purely transactional mode with them. So I think values matter, uh, and I think values also like are connected to like your sense of self and confidence in like, hey, I don't necessarily agree with everyone, yeah. but I'm not afraid to say it because I have a, like a pretty good sense of like what I think right and wrong are and sense of self and those things. So anyway, this got a little bit more philosophical than I was planning for, and <laughs> this morning's bingo card.
0: Yeah, well, I just want to say that values, I agree. I think it's hard to play long-term games with long-term people if you don't have values intrinsically. So I think there is a commercial advantage for having values, but also as a, <laughs> <laughs> as a parent, I hope I hang out with people with values, right? And I hope, I would love my child to have values, right? I wouldn't want to hang out with someone with no values as a kid. But it does feel, I think in this world today, it does feel increasingly transactional, right? And so it does feel like sometimes like a sucker's game to, I don't know have values or try to bite by them
1: no lie, i think you still have to like yourself in the morning when you wake up and, and so that's i don't know i i try to I, I, it's something i try to communicate right which is yeah. like you, you really just need to know your mind right you need to understand like you know what you stand for
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. so cool yeah well, on that note have a wonderful week ahead
1: you too take it easy jeremy
0: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.braves.ea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.